Right, I'm going to make this quick. I've got a train to catch. Uh, <laughs> um, let's start with a word of prayer. Uh, dear Father, Lord, uh, thank you so much for allowing us together to, to gather together today in order to worship you. In order to come here and acknowledge that you are our God and that you created us and that all things are possible through you. That you care for us so much, uh, more than we can ever know, that you did that you sacrifice your only son in order that we could have that opportunity to be with you. Thank you. I pray that uh, you allow me to speak your words today as I pray on numerous occasions that these are not my words, but they are your words and can transform, um, can tr- transform our hearts, Lord, can move our hearts close to you. Thank you. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. It doesn't matter if I roll on. Uh, When I notice people that are dozing off, I'll sort of try and close. Um, Last time, if you remember last time I came up and did a sermon, uh, there was a bit of a a challenging question. It was like, who do you think you are? I don't know whether many of you remember exactly what all that was about. But this is a bit of a continuation on that. So maybe it will encourage you to sort of listen back to what that was about and sort of try and piece things together. So the question I'm going to start today with is, who are you? Who are you? Who am I? Well, I know that Wamba is a very good singer. And that our worship team do a fantastic job. I know each and every one of them sort of puts in their all and and they've got great voices. They can sort of put the instrumentation together, etc. I know them for that. I know that Scott Bryden likes designing buildings and sort of erects Aldi's all over the place. Um, So you can thank him for that. Um, I know that uh, Jason likes designing games. And he's very good at it. He's got a job doing it. Um, but the point is, you know, who are you really? Besides sort of the things that you, you like doing or that people can actually see you sort of doing, who are you? And it's funny because we may not be asked that before I sort of pose that question. We may not have thought a great deal about it. But there's a whole industry out there that, are, that tries to tell you who you are through sort of various sort of personality tests, etc. Myers-Briggs, if you've ever come across that. I mean, we even did a study in... Um, that we did this Principles of a Growing Marriage, in which we looked at the four humours, and that which ones were we, and how we can... to try and understand who we are. And then some of us sort of look at our families. We look at our history, and we think, that's who I am. I've descended from this line, or that's what they're about, therefore that's what I should be about. So what is it that Jesus sees? Despite all of that, what is it that Jesus sees in us that he would say in Luke 12, 32, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. 
Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. God is pleased with us. Whether we like it or not, God is pleased with us enough to give us his kingdom. That's quite remarkable. That really is quite remarkable. Because we can look at these personality tests and all of it, all the rest of it, and we look perhaps at our history and we think, well, we're doomed. We're not, we really haven't got much to sort of give or offer. But that's, that's not what Jesus sees. God is pleased with little old us enough to give us the kingdom. So what is it about us? Our disobedience, our hard-headedness, stubbornness, that we should refuse to change. Refuse to change to please God. I want to know. I need to know what is man that God is mindful of him or the son of man that God cares for him. Why did he make us just a little lower than the angels and crown us with glory and honour putting everything in subjection under our feet? Who are we that God should find pleasure in some of us? And I say some of us because we don't like to talk about the fact that everyone talking about heaven isn't necessarily going to go there. That's a harsh reality, but it's the truth. That's why Jesus says, fear not, little flock. Because although thousands came to hear, thousands would be fed, and thousands may be healed, only a few would make it to the kingdom. Yes, he died for all. But comparing those for whom he died to those who will actually believe, he describes them as a little flock. That can sound a little discouraging. And it's not meant to be. Because the fact is God loves us. No matter who we are, where we're from, God loves us still. And he wants to give us the kingdom. I emphasize, he wants to give us the kingdom. That's why he says in Matthew 8 verse 12, What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Now to wonder, if you, 
imagine the sort of sheep sort of in a field or whatever. They're, they're wandering about aimlessly. They, they've got no aim. They've got no thought behind what I'm going to do next. They've got their, they're just fixed on eating. And that's their goal, is to eat. Um, so they just wander around the field, heads down. They don't know where they're going sometimes. And they start rambling, they're chewing away. And, and before they know it, they're somewhere else, somewhere they thought they would necessarily be. And that can be a bit like us. In fact, that's why it's mentioned, is because it's aimed at us. It's not aimed at sheep, etc. It's aimed at us. We are those sheep. Without our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, we can amble through life, reacting to things as and when they turn up, and then sort of look up one day and think, where am I? How did I get here? In the previous verse, in Luke 12.32, to Luke 12.32, in verse 29 through to 31, it says, And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things. And your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. There is a reason Jesus says, Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry. Because that can cause us to focus in on something other than Jesus. And I certainly know that with myself. I can sort of be quite focused on work at times. And I can just be, my head is down. I'm sort of focusing on it. And I can drift. Whether I like it or not, I can drift away from other things that are more important. Because I'm focused in. And we need to be aware of that. Because it it starts off something very small. Something very small and it grows into something, well, I shouldn't say grows, but we find ourselves somewhere else later on because it's developed into something much larger. Like how many people here have heard of the American dream? So I'm not, he's born, I know, she's living it. (laughs) Um, I I know there's been a, a bit of talk about America today, isn't it? Well, we're part of this international community, so... I feel it's, it's only right. We had a bit of Swahili singing as well, so we've got it all in there. Um, we, they don't call us the International Church for nothing. Um, we've heard of this idea of the American dream, and it's there to tap into one of people's, well, I suppose, sort of deepest needs in life, to feel secure, to feel valuable, and to feel acceptance. Uh, There was a report that was sort of put together back in 1995, I know it's quite a while back, but this report that was sort of uh, done through sort of uh, the Roper polling organisation, it asked Americans how much money they thought they would need to fulfil their dreams. And the medium sum mentioned was $102,000, $102,000 a year. A year. That's quite a lot of money. That's what they thought to sort of, it would fulfill their dreams. Uh, But the number responding to $1 million or more 
doubled from the previous year. So from 94 to 95, the actual number that thought a million, it actually doubled in number. In 2002, they asked, how would you rate your financial situation? 55% said fair or poor. And that includes 26%, 26% of those who earn $75,000 or more a year. 26% of those that earn $75,000 or more, remembering this is back in 2002, said that they, 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 weren't, they weren't particularly happy. See, the thing is, the majority from this survey, they, they realise that the majority of Americans are not a contented lot, basically. That's what, they, that's what they summed up. And you think, well, why am I talking about this American dream? Because that is a dream for so many people living in this country and many others around the world. There is this dream that... That's what will make me happy. You know, this dream that's defined by material things. Um, Through advertisements, through billboards, you name it, it's out there sort of trying to convince you that, you know, this is it. If If you follow this, you'll be happy. And it's a lie. It is a lie. I mean... the. There's evidence showing that, you know, the, the number of people who are happy, you know, have not increased anything more than they did when it was in the 50s, when people were still on rations. So all this dreaming leads us away from the small flock. The point is, we are in this world. We are listening to things whether we like it or not. It is getting in there, it affects us. It's just a fact. And it usually start. it can start with something very small. And I'm going to give you an example of, there was a sister over in the Burundian church in Bujumbura. Um, she had a job with the government over there. Uh, she was a prominent member in the church. And where she was involved in all the singing. She was involved in a lot of studies with people. She was heavily involved in the church, very sort of committed. And they approached her at work, they said, we've got this opportunity. Um, Involve some training, would you like to go to the US for a number of months to receive this training and uh, so you can sort of develop it and then come back and sort of help us to sort of learn about various things. And she said yes. And you might think, yeah, that sounds good. But, and this is the but, as she was going through the training, etc., she thought, I don't want to go back to Burundi. I want to stay here. And she sort of became more distant from the church because she knew that she would have to sort of go back. And now she's over there and there is no contact whatsoever. They don't know where she is and various other things. And you think, well, what is this story about? Well, this story is about it can start off with something very small. You can think, this is, this is not going to have any real effect on my life. This is an opportunity God has put in my life. I should take it. 
Where are underlying motives? Where is, it take, where is it going to take us? Have we prayed about it? Have we sought advice about it? Going back to the scripture in Luke eight twelve, What do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away? Will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. See, there is great hope. There is a great hope. Our God is not willing, is not willing that we should perish. But we, are we willing to be saved? God is not willing that we should perish. But are we willing to be saved? And we are willing to be saved when we know how important we are to God. And I think perhaps that's something that some of us struggle with. We don't see ourselves as important to God. We see ourselves as failures in various things, whether we've sinned today, we've done this tomorrow, whatever it is. God still loves you. God is not giving up on you. But are you willing to be saved? Let's have a look at some scriptures. To help us understand how important we are to God. Looking right in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. On the sixth day, on the sixth day of creation. So Genesis 1, and we'll read in 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female, he created them. And later on, we see that, I suppose, a sort of more, in a more personal way, how David sort of looked to God in Psalm 139, in verse 13 onwards. For, he, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God knew us before there was even a thought about us in terms of our parents' ideas, etc. He, he knew us before then. That is just it's mind-blowing. He knew us before we were created. Wow. Doesn't that make you feel a little bit special? See, God has designed you to resemble him, to 
image him. And we all have the gift to image him in our particular way. When you do that thing, you honour God. You bring in glory. And he delights to see you reflecting something of him in your human form. There's a lovely little story. Um, it sort of comes out of, well, you'll have heard of it through sort of chariots of fire and the races. There's a guy called Eric Lidder. Uh, and he's, he grew up in the 20th century, um, early part of it. And he felt a calling to be a missionary, a missionary in China. So he attended universities in, in Oxford and Edinburgh to prepare for this. Um, but if you've seen the film, you also know he was a very fast person. Uh, so fast that he was recruited into the 1924 uh, Olympic team, the, the British Olympic team. But uh, when his sister heard about him sort of going into this Olympic team, she was saying, you know, Eric, I'm... I thought your dream was going to China. I thought that's what God wanted you to do. And she was pestering him about this all the time. You know, I thought, you know, it was about going to China. So one day he goes for a walk with Jenny, his sister. And he says, Jenny, you have to understand. I believe God made me for a purpose. For China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And that's what it's like, I believe, to live out the image of God, to feel his pleasure. How many of us are feeling God's pleasure as we go about our daily business? Because we matter to God. He's given us some incredible talents, incredible abilities. That when we use them in the right way, we feel his pleasure. In Luke 19, verse 1, you know, we see something of Jesus knowing us. It's a story about Zacchaeus. Jesus, uh, so in Luke, 19, uh, in Luke uh, 19, verse 1, it says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. Since Jesus was coming that way, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Jesus knew Zacchaeus. I don't believe he had met him before. There's nothing that I can read in the scriptures to suggest otherwise. But he called him down by name. And that's exactly what he's doing to us today and each and every day. He's calling us by name. 
Walter, Wamba, Scott, whoever it may be. (laughs) There's many of you out there. I'm not going to go through everybody. Uh, But he's calling each of us by name. Come down. I want to stay with you. Are you willing to respond? Are you willing to respond and continue to respond to Jesus? Because we might think, yeah, I've responded, I've repented, I've been baptised. Yeah. But are we continuing to respond to Jesus? It's not a sort of, yes, you've done that part, but are we continuing to respond to Jesus? If Jesus said, can I stay at your house today? We're going to say, well, actually, no, today's not convenient. I've got something on. I'm going to church, actually, but (laughs) you're welcome to come with me. Uh, Are we willing to respond? How do we stop ourselves wandering? I think there's a scripture that sort of really helped me with that was in Hebrews 12, verse 1. Well, starting in verse, verse 1, and it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Are we willing to lift our heads up to Jesus from the grass that we're continuing to graze? And we do graze it from time to time. We, We are down. We are sort of in our thing from time to time. But are we raising our heads up to sort of check where we are, to check that Jesus is there in our lives. That we're not wandering off to pastures new. We are that small flock in Christ's church. I am sure that you'll agree with me, or certainly this is how I feel, that when I gather, when I come here, when I came here today, I felt security being amongst you. I felt valuable. I felt accepted. Isn't that how we should feel? Isn't that how we know that we're in Christ's church? Because that is Christ's way. But nevertheless, we need to be watchful and not become complacent. We can easily wander when our eyes are not fixed on God. The grass may seem greener on the other side, but look at the results in the world. Never have people been so self-reliant, yet so lonely. Never have people been so free, and yet our prisons are full. Never have people had so much education, yet such high rates of delinquency, despair and suicide. Never have people been so sophisticated about pleasure, yet so likely to suffer 
broken or miserable marriages. We have been offered the kingdom, so why do we choose something else? Because consciously and unconsciously, we judge ourselves. We judge ourselves by one of the world's four standards. Appearance. How I look. This mentality says that the more beautiful we are, the more important and the more valuable we are. That's what the world says. Affluence. If I own a lot, then I must be worth a lot. That's what the world says. Achievement. Do you base your value on your education, on awards, notoriety, promotions? That's what the world does. Or approval. How many people like me? How popular am I? The problem with this value system is that it's not stable. Beauty fades. Possessions wear out. Someone else surpasses our successes. And not everybody will like you. That's a sad fact. Not everybody will like you. And in a way, that's the way it should be. You know, Jesus does talk about being persecuted. It's not sort of an option. It's, it's there. It's present. It's the truth. I'm not saying you should go out to make people hate you, but <laughs> people will look for things that are wrong in you. And that does not matter. The only solid foundation for self-worth is to realise how much you matter to God. When you see yourself the way God sees you, it will transform you. The world cannot meet our needs because it was never meant to. Because as it says in 1 Peter 2 uh, verse 9, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you would not receive mercy... But now you have received mercy. To the Christians of his day, and to us, Peter says, you are a chosen race. All who belong to God, by faith in Jesus Christ, are a special people. Chosen by God to constitute a new people. God is making a people gathered around his son into a new Israel. That's us. You are a royal priesthood. Not just any priesthood, but a royal priesthood. You know, we're designed to serve the king of kings, to serve God. You are a holy people. 
because you belong to God. We are obligated to be holy because we belong to God. Because we have been set apart to do God's service. You are people of God's own possession. We are God's special property. And as such, we are recipients of God's special care. God cares for us so much. I mean, I still struggle with the fact that he could allow his son to die for me, to die for us. That's how much he cares for us. We are made worthy to belong to God. You were planned for God's pleasure. You are not an accident. You were made to last forever. That's why we don't want to think about death and various things. Because we are designed to live forever. Not in a sort of physical form. This is just temporary. But we are designed that way. Because we are in a preparation stage. Your greatest happiness and fulfilment on earth is found in living for God's pleasure. And this is one of the many paradoxes of the Christian faith. And this one, like the others, has the power to transform our lives. And I want us to sort of think back to this little story about Eric Liddell. You know, he understood that God had designed him for a purpose. And when he ran, he felt God's pleasure. As we run today, as we run each and every day in our lives, let us feel God's pleasure. Amen. Thank you, James. If we can all stand for our closing song, please. <clears throat> One, two.